Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Wild. Before we get on to today's show, Nadia and I would like to remind everyone that whilst Into the Wild is a super accessible show, we do occasionally let out the odd swear word. So if you're a young nerd, make sure you tell your parents that. And if you're someone that doesn't like swearing, then I'm sorry for all the shit, hit, and whacks. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your, one of your hosts, Ryan Dalton, and I'm sat on Zoom with my other host, Nadia Shake. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> How are you doing, darling? I'm all right, my lovely. Always How? better for seeing you. Oh, always better for seeing you. I mm-hmm. feel, feel like when I people say that, I would say 99% never... success rate of always better for seeing you. Really? I was just about to say when people say that, it's usually not true, it's just politeness. There's a good 1% where I'm like, ugh. <laughs> what have I done in those moments? Or is it nothing I've done, it's just environment? It's nothing you've done, it'll just be the environment. It's like when I stay at yours and you like come in in the morning and I'm like, oh. No, actually, oh, that my, is better. When I come in in the morning with a coffee? No, oh, you do, don't you? In your little <laughs> dressing gown. <laughs> I always love you coming in your dressing gown and, it, yeah. and the end of it just grazes above your knees. Whereas everyone else always goes below the knee. <laughs> I'm such a tall human being. How so are tall. you? I'm all right, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Approaching the end of the week. So looking forward to the weekend. Going away to Devon, which is going to be banging. Um, going to have a little like little bit of a break. Yeah, so feeling good. What are you drinking for the podcast? What's your beverage I'm of choice? I'm having a cup of black tea in a tin mug. In a tin mug. Oh, taking it back to the 20s. <laughs> I'm living, I'm in, currently in a house with no furniture or cutlery or crockery. Um, so I add this in my van. Once again, drinking? I find myself on the podcast assuring everyone that Nadia is okay. <laughs> I find myself... <laughs> every, every episode, I'm like, we're all right. We're just <laughs> rationing in an what? empty house. I know. I like to, yeah... Sometimes I'm decadent. My my beverage of drink is a bottle of Whitstable Bay by Faversham Steam Brewery. Did a gig there back in the day. Comedy Faversham nights. or in Faversham, the brewery? Faversham, yeah. In, in the brewery. Steam Brewery used to do comedy nights, so I used to yeah. do a gig. Could you uh, organise nice. a piss-up in a brewery? Y- yes. Yeah, that joke was made many a times on stage that evening. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah Whitstable Bay is a powwow. It's very nice. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone from Faversham Steam Brewery are listening, but if you are... Um, we are open to sponsorships. So I'd, I'd happily drink this and say it's lovely on every episode. Yeah, I would be open to any kind of sponsorship with this podcast. I, I would even say to people, when you're drinking it, don't drink responsibly. Have as many as you want. Do it. Yeah. Get them down, you. That might have just ruined any corpse sponsorship <laughs> deal. <laughs> yeah, because before that, we were in. Mm. <laughs> um, you don't ask, you don't get. You don't do. Brilliant. Well, I'm excited for today. I know. This one's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, it's going to um, be good. Let, before, we, before we get on, let's, uh, let's do a bit of Nature Run 101. Now, Nadia and I did put the call out for your kind of least favourite nature media stories that you'd like to go into Nature Run 101. But then after a discussion and seeing the ones you sent in, we kind of thought they're all going to go in. They're all going to go in, shit. but it's still gold. It's all still gold. So I thought I, what we decided to do is pick well, our favourite one. Oh, go on. Well, we're going to pick a favourite one. But then some of there were a couple where I was like, that's so funny that I almost don't want it to go in and it needs to be out in the world. Okay, you know which one I'm talking about. I think I do. Okay, I'm going to say the one that we picked that is like, 
is recent and up there and okay. ridiculous. And then you've put out this surprise one. No, okay. All right, maybe we've differed. This will be interesting. We've differed. We've, okay, so the one we're going for is the recent story. I, I can't remember which art of paper was it. Was it in the, it would have been the Daily Mail, I surely. think it was in many. Was I it actually many? think it was, it was reported on different angles. Okay, so it was the one about, it was Hemlock, wasn't it? The plant, the killer plant, the poisonous plant lurking outside of a school that um, must be removed in case the <laughs> students eat it for some God knows reason, like their cattle going into an abattoir. Don't let them eat anything on the way in. Grazing like, on the way in. If you're that concerned, that's what the children are doing. Jesus, teach them better. Like yeah. that is a you problem as a teacher. If you're not a te- There are so many plants that if people start eating, they're going to feel a bit sick after. Yeah, oh, like There's so many plants. Famously, just famously, questions should be asked. Why are these children grazing the verges on the way? <laughs> <laughs> you know when you you know when, when you they see say them kids, moving. Do they mean goats? <laughs> you see move. You know you sometimes actually were stopped on the road the other day by some cattle moving across the road, and um, when they were let out of one field to go into the next. Because the verges were so kind of verdant and full and full of like mm. summer richness, you could see them like taking the opportunity yeah. on the way to be like, hang on, there's some good stuff here. But I imagine that's what school children do in and out of school. Well, apparently that's what they do. And this is High why risk. Hemlock posed such a risk. Um, yeah. So this was a story basically people were complaining that a poisonous plant was growing outside of a school and it should be removed, where really it's just a native wildflower that is very beneficial to many invertebrates. And really, I don't think there's been a case in the last hundred years where someone's <laughs> taken a munch out of some hemlock and yeah. had the shit. Particularly not school children. I think there are a couple of stories um, that yeah, where people not, have, but uh, have maybe not Darwinism, died. come on. But then, you know, being, yeah, exactly. Like, let we, let's bring every story where people's interaction of nature has caused an issue, right? Like, right. How many car crashes every day? We're still driving them. Yeah, exactly. So that's the one we decided to put into Nature Room. One, one it's going it in. Recent. It was ridiculous. It's definitely going we in. Do have a, we do have a voice note on this. Are we going to play it? Um, yeah, do you know what? Actually, this is from... This, the person that suggested this was someone that's been on the show before. We love her. We absolutely adore this human being. It's Amy Friend Jane Beer. Show. So this was Amy Jane Beer's <laughs> lovely voice note from within a car <laughs> ranting about this story. So here's Amy to probably deliver it a bit better than us. Ah, uh, yes, I do have one. I don't know how many times you heard me trying to, attempting to record this message. But um, yeah, huge media organisations such as BBC, who have access to literally hundreds of experts that they could consult, um, not using that and then choosing instead to use their position that could be there to educate and inform and inspire and, and share awe and joy, using it instead to peddle ridiculous stories. Take the third exit onto the like the recent one about dangerous plants lurking in plain sight. I think that's a direct quote of the headline. It incensed me so much that I remembered the, the actual headline um, about, it was linked to that hemlock story. They could have followed up the hemlock, ridiculous hemlock story with some information. And instead they followed it up with a headline about all the other plants, well not all of them, five that they picked at random, that are lurking and out to murder us while we sleep or eat our children, or who knows what else. But yes, ridiculous. They're there to do a job. And I don't think anyone actually wants those stories. Who wants scare stories about things that actually aren't a problem? Yeah, that. Stick it in room 101. Sensationalist, ridiculous scaremongering about wildlife that isn't even vaguely true or vaguely interesting. I'll calm down now. Mm. (laughs) I'm hot. There's no air con. (laughs) 
there we are. There's brilliant Amy. <laughs> Love it. So, Nadia, what do you all have a story? So the other suggestion was uh, maybe this existed, maybe it didn't, but a news story with a headline, a seagull ate my chihuahua. Oh, God, yeah. I don't know. I reckon that could happen. Maybe it could, but either way, leave it out. Because I'm almost just like, great, don't have a chihuahua. That's horrible. Sorry, I do actually love chihuahuas and I did nearly get one once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Um, I had to talk her um, out of that. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I, it was one of those, it's like when I was going to get a perm and everybody gathered around and said, Nadia, don't. Yeah. Interventions. Quite, they happen it was quite a, a rescue lot, dog. And he was called Sergey, this little chihuahua called Sergey, and I was absolutely smitten with his little face. And then everybody did an intervention. <laughs> and just offered you a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> Instead. I do live near a lot of seagulls, do, so the yeah. risk would have been high. We just didn't want the traumatic But let's event. not put that in there. Let's leave it out. Yeah. Some of them are so funny. We're just like, I'm sorry, that's, we need some humour in the world. Otherwise, we'll just be crying. Um, yeah. So th there we go. That's what we're doing for Nature Room 1. There's one we're putting in. They're all going in, but there's the one we wanted to celebrate. And the one that we keep them coming because oh God, I find it really them. funny. Please do keep sending yes. the, the headlines in that you've seen, which are just like really absurd ways of reporting on nature. They can be absolutely anything. Just send them to intothewildpod at gmail.com and we will credit you as well if you want to put your full name and we can give you a nice shout out on the show. Um, if we can also potentially, we if we find some of those headlines, we can retweet them as well so you can enjoy Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. <clears throat> right, let's go on to some nature news. Let's update everyone on what the hell is going on on this weird old planet. Right, um, can I go first? You want to go first? Of course you a bit can, of nature news. Um, This one... I will say to everyone listening and yourself, Nadia, don't react. To, don't react. <laughs> don't react to it until I've said it all, because it on the surface, and I still I don't like it, but it sounds worse than it is. I've got to get into some information first. So it's very headline, and then it will come down a little bit, right? Um, so basically, uh, it came out in Monga Bay, which is a conservation kind of news website. Very good. Look it up if you don't follow it. Critics decry Nepal's minister's terrible idea of sport hunting tigers, aka trophy hunting. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because it's no secret that we've dived into the trophy hunting chat before. And I saw this, and that was a real head scratcher for me because obviously tigers are extremely endangered, although numbers have been increasing over the last few years. But there are some, there's some context and nuance here. So basically, when we say that the minister has said this, they've muttered this as a breath in an interview. This is not, there's been no details of plans on how this would actually work. But basically the environment minister has suggested selling licenses to hunt tigers in the country as a means of both controlling the predator's population and raising money for conservation. But conservationist wildlife experts and local communities have denounced it as a terrible idea saying it would endanger the tigers and their wider ecosystem as well as violate indigenous beliefs. Now I will pause there and say, there's no further detail on who these wildlife experts are, local communities or anything like that. So we take that with a pinch of salt because I have seen in the past some of these wildlife reporting stories say experts or indigenous communities and it not quite be the case. So I'd like to personally, I'd like to know a bit more about who those voices are. Researchers warn hunting is ineffective and unnecessary as a means of reducing human-tiger conflict and that tiger population may have reached its natural limits in the country anyway. So I've been following this on Twitter purely to see what people are talking about because the environment minister seems to believe from somewhere, and we're not sure kind of where this number's come from, that up to $25 million per tiger could be paid what? into, which is an insane amount of money. 
in my research, and I spoke to Professor Adam Hart and as well about his research, that is the highest number from any trophy hunt that has ever been muttered. The previous highest that I had heard of was a black rhino for, I think, $300,000. So wow. it's a huge jump. So we're not sure where that number's come from. It's, it wouldn't be a lot of tigers. You're talking about one every five years, and it would be heavily regulated so that it'd be targeted individuals that might be nuisanced, old, not breeding anymore, um, probably males. And I, I didn't know how I felt about this bit of news because on the surface, I'm like, gross absolutely gross why is it why is this the, the go-to solution but i'm not working in the pool i've never been there i've not seen the situation i do know tigers attack people there are lots of conflict tiger populations have increased there might be loads of uh, conflicts going on there might there, i would assume there's a shortfall of money in conservation because that's just famously the case globally maybe ministers in nepal have been talking to other countries around the world that have used sport hunting or trophy hunting such as where snow leopard territory hunting of certain um, ibex species from a community perspective, has helped protect habitat and therefore protect the snow leopard and those populations have gone up. So if these conversations have been happening, maybe it's just a bit of a, oh, maybe we could do this here as well. Until I brought in a conservationist that had been on the show before on Twitter, Sam Helly, who's done a lot of work in Nepal with communities, forestries and tiger conservation as well. And she said, I don't have a lot of experience in sport hunting, so can't comment too much on that. However, it is illegal to hunt in Nepal full stop. So if they are going to bring in foreign hunters, I think it's only fair to let the indigenous communities at least hunt wild boar for themselves as well. Now, when I learned that point, I was like, oh, I think I've made my mind up. <laughs> I think it's quite hypocritical to say, sure, rich foreign hunters could come in and shoot regulated hunting, but we're not going to allow our communities to self-sustain on hunting as well. So that kind of helped me make up my decision. But I wanted to bring that in because I think it's a story that's probably going to get a bit of press over the next year if it does go any further. And it is that one with a bit of nuance. I think we're going to be learning a bit more about what the plan would be, if it's going to happen, probably might not at all. Um, and actually what these communities feel about this kind of stuff as well. What's your thoughts, Nadia? No, it's a really interesting one. And maybe I haven't had enough time to digest it after what you've said. Mm. I certainly feel that I'm not uncomfortable with communities identifying what animals and how to remove and manage animals within their sphere. And mm. I think we've spoken about this before yeah, in yeah. terms of the nuance of like, I think for millennia, humans have probably had relationships which are deep and complex and not really for, for me to necessarily understand. And the idea of there being, an, you know, an old rogue male, that's a problem. And kind of, I guess, I guess it's difficult, right? Like the, the thought of a rich person coming in does make me feel really uncomfortable just in terms of like the respect for the animal and is the respect there and actually, you know, how have communities sacrificed and killed with the respect, this is probably, and I'm imagining that an anthropologist can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, a lot of cultures, when you take an animal, there is like a moment of kind of reverence mm. in that, that act. Um, but having said that, I am also not Nepalese. Exactly. And so yeah, yeah. I don't get to make choices on that. I can have thoughts personally and privately of this magical creature and how its life is going to come to an end, which I think is fine. Like our relationships with wildlife across the world have, that's how we cross paths with nature. Um, we hunt, we kill, we eat, we have respect, we manage, we observe, we learn, we respect. There is reverence in those moments, presumably. Um, I've heard really beautiful accounts of people hunting and tracking deer for hours and hours and hours and how they have this really deep relationship with the, the animal mm. in those last moments and that deep respect. Um, it's the dirtiness that comes from our 
uncomfortableness of you know it being monetized, but no more monetized than any of the stuff that we buy and consume yeah. and and wildlife that is killed as a result of a monetary transaction of somebody using a bit of land to extract resources for money and all yeah. of the animals that die as a result of that. It seems okay to us because it's so distant and apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have this species supremacism. It's so indirect as well. Like there's Big a, metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting story. An yeah, I think we might even revisit yeah, that. I think if... tigers are very evocative, so people will get emotional. <sighs> yep. And I did. I will put my hand up and say I did as well. I'll be like, you can't do that. And then thought, well, wait a minute, Ryan. <laughs> Let's revisit people some People will process. show their stripes yeah. <laughs> with this one. She finishes on another pun. What's your story? <laughs> oh, mine's just like something that just has probably hacked off a lot of listeners if you've been listening to the news. And this is about kind of like the weaponizing, the political weaponizing of the ULEZ scheme. Mm. Rishi Sunak guessing that, you know, kind of going anti-low emission zones in Oaksbridge and kind of politicising this issue, making this assumption that people that live in Oaksbridge kind of don't care and that'll sway voters. And just just generally this kind of like, I feel like, and I think a lot of people feel like, and I probably, you know, probably need to do more reading and thinking around it, but but generally green issues have long been weaponised, but it seems to be ramping up a little bit. Politics is always weaponised certain populations and communities of people to win and sway votes, um, whether that's migrant issue, whether it's Brexit, these things are kind of weaponized rather than looking at bigger picture and solutions. Obviously, that's politics. It's dirty and it's messy. But just this increasingly bringing in green policies and issues around stuff to, to win over and put people against each other. And this assumption that left voters or, or like the red wall, you know, maybe working class communities don't care about green issues, which just pisses me right off because that's just not the case at all and also like a slightly different no but it's just coming no but it's coming the same week I was listening to the radio the other day and I heard a Tory minister say um in response to the increasing temperatures in response to I think the wildfires in Rhodes in Greece that actually a lot of people this is what he said a lot of people in the UK die from cold more people die from cold each year and so actually an increase in temperatures could be beneficial and honestly, the levels of just stupidity and and the danger of just not, I don't know, just what a stupid comment to make, right? Like the reason why people die of cold each year is because you've hiked up gas prices. Know, people yes. are having to choose between it's, eating and heating. It's not people's direct response to cold. Like, it's not, it just gets cold and people, people just, just die. die. <laughs> Um, famously, yeah. a, a time when it feels like increasingly the world is burning, we are making an absolute mockery of of green solutions, which at least are trying. Mm. And you, the ULEZ scheme, I mean, this year I have paid <laughs> more than £500 on fines. On fines? We said this in the last show, you dri- driving in clean air zones. <laughs> I had, actually one of them was because I fell asleep in a... Whilst um, driving. <laughs> Just drove in. <laughs> in a services and I went over the two hours because I was really tired. Oh, right. Then I had and then I had I've had four from Sheffield and I had one from London in December. Nadia, this um, isn't a space for you to like, you know, sin, like announce your sins. You don't have to do that. I am okay. They're not <laughs> sins, right? Like I'm just getting used to the scheme. I don't <laughs> blame the scheme. I I blame me. <laughs> But at least an attempt to clear the pollution from airs in cities. Mm. Um, and obviously, with any solutions that are monetary-based, those that have more money will flaunt the rules. And that's just, that's the system that we're in. But yeah, just really frustrating. 
kind of like weaponization of that. Should we? Bit, bit, bit shit news. Let's go. Yeah, I was going to say on that note, the news has been really shit for mm-hmm. a few weeks. Um, anyone out there with having anxiety about this sadness, worry, dread, you're not alone, mate. We are all with you. DM us on social media if you need to. We're here to have a bit of a chat. Um, I will share a bit of positive news. <laughs> um, let's let's share this. Okay, this happened in the UK uh, last week. Rare clearwing moths were found in Staffordshire Nature Reserve for the first time. Um, a rare moth has been found in a Staffordshire Nature Reserve that was declared extinct to the area. Um, Staffordshire Wildlife Trust is celebrating the discovery of the Welsh clearwing moth after an entomologist and insect scientist reported signs of them emerging from a tree. Isn't that lovely? Nice. There we go. They are a beautiful moth. They are That's such a stunning, joy. Stunning, stunning, stunning. Really, really good news when we get to meet our friends in nature again, having been absent. And if any, if you wanted to look for a clearwing moth emerging, look for old silver birch trees. Nice big, like old gnarly ones with a circumference like my head and bigger. <laughs> no one can see that. Um, and they will emerge from like holes in those trees and you'll just see the exuviae, which is like the, the crusty shell of where the kind of pupa where the, the the moth has emerged from you'll just see it poking out so just give give those a little observation and see if you too can find <laughs> a welsh clearwing moth shall we move on to today's episode yeah let's go let's go right today on the kind of on jumping on from what Nadia's story was about. We're going to be talking about the climate crisis and we're going to be talking about biodiversity, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about how these things interlink with each other and how climate change has an impact on our planet's biodiversity, including on us. Um, So I thought a good point to start with this, Nadia, is to kind of define for people, not that people might need it, but what climate change is. Because I think we kind of get a bit confused with this. We just assume it's hot weather. We just assume a heat wave is the sign of a climate crisis. But actually, is that more, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this, is that more weather as a result of increasing temperatures, which is climate change? So it is kind of interesting to get our definitions right. So climate change in the simplest form, nerds, is a change in conditions such as temperature and rainfall in a region over a long period of time. This then can create different and often more severe weather patterns as we are seeing across Europe currently with extended dry seasons and then wildfires. So it's over a long period of time. So you will see some, I'm going to be quite blunt with this, some deniers out there, uh, maybe who you have to talk to or some people on social media, saying, well, in 2016, it was hotter. And why did they not make a big deal about it then? Yes, we probably did have a hotter heat wave in August 2016 for a week. But the point is these temperatures are getting averagely higher and lasting for a longer uh, longer season, just like we did in the UK last year with, in London, nearly four months without rain and three and a half months of 35 degrees Celsius, which is not norm. So... Our big question is how does this, how does climate change affect biodiversity in us? And I thought I would start with talking a bit about the ocean. Considering it takes up the majority of space, it's probably good to know what the hell's going on. Yeah, that 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 little side that little side hustle. <laughs> that little side hustle of the ocean. Um so again, this is all simple simple stuff, nerds. It's not not complicated to understand, but climate change simply warms the ocean. This causes knock-on effects such as thermal expansion which leads to a rise in sea levels and a change in ocean currents and there's a news story recently which I think is probably 
quite worrying. I think this came out a couple of days ago. That the Gulf Stream, which kind of creates that mild weather we get in the UK, which brings this hot water through, could break down in the next 50 odd years, 25 to 50 years, which is quite terrifying. What causes this is the melting of sea ice, both on land and in the sea, also it affects the ocean, causing more sea level rise and reduces the salinity of the ocean. And then you've got greater concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, also mean that more of it dissolves into the ocean, leading to acidification. So these three things, decrease the salinity, rise in levels, carbon monoxide causing acidification as well. Those are the kind of three main effects we're seeing across the world's oceans. And each of these changes will affect marine wildlife. A warming ocean temperatures can lead to coral bleaching, which I think we've that's happened ever since I was a kid. Yeah, I've heard about that a long time. And I think it's so coral bleaching, essentially the kind of important photosynthesis mm. abilities of the coral disappears, which is why they look white. So yeah. they're losing all of that. And then they they can't bounce back from it. They're gone. No, in some cases, so you get like you get more resilient corals as well. So some corals, like normally it's about one to two degrees threshold that corals have right so any change within that one to two degrees they're fine but we're seeing way more than that happen quite quickly so this is where we get in our mass die-offs on different coral reefs and like nadia said it's a breakdown the whites are just bleaches of skeletons left behind and we're nothing living in it and the more resilient ones can bounce back and cor or corals altogether can bounce back but we're talking over about a 15 20 year process for them to be able to do that and if these conditions in our oceans are continuing to have these three main effects of rising levels, which means they'll get less sunlight as the water gets higher, acidification and the salinity changing as well, then they're not going to be able to recover because they're not going back to normal conditions. So it's you've got that kind of domino effect where it's just getting worse and worse. I wonder whether sometimes as well people, because we have all these amazing wildlife documentaries and also I think people just naturally hold hope mm. um, that wildlife is resilient. It's really hard to receive those messages where it's like you know, there's some stuff that's yeah. going to be gone and it, it can't yeah, yeah. come back. Um, and that is the case. Yeah, it is, it is a very much it's a loss. It's, um, yeah, it can go and, and not come back. And I think it's, you know, we can sit here very comfortably in London and go like, well, coral reefs, and shrug, shrug that off, um, despite the fact we have them around our own coastlines anyway. But you've got to remember that there are people out there that rely on them very much so. You know, if coral reefs break down, it's not just the corals that go, it's, it's the other... Well, the rest of the ecosystem around it. And a lot of people use those fish for food, for trade and for survival. But then also they have huge barriers in the same way mangroves are for low laying land in storms and stuff. It, you know, it breaks mm. those waves down a little bit, stops the amount of damage that can hit the land. You know, so, so it's very easy for us to shrug them off. But we've got to, again, we've got to kind of like branch our mind out and think like there are people that live on these kind of ecosystems. Then we've got ice on land. So when ice on the land melts, so ice sheets and glaciers melts, it adds water volume to the ocean. This increases sea levels globally, which can inundate low-lying land and important coastal environments such as mangroves and wetlands as well. And then when sea ice melts, it doesn't add volume to the ocean necessarily, but that does add the fresh water, which is then when you get the salt levels changing as well. So these are kind of, it, it kind of makes sense. I don't know, when I was doing, I thought I'd do a bit of research to make sure I was going to say the right thing. But like all these effects are like, I don't know, I find this common sense. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Like when I hear it, I'm like, of well, course, yeah, of this course. is the way. We're changing the parameters <laughs> yeah. and the equilibrium that have been there quickly. We're doing it quickly. I think that's, that's one of the, the kind of main points is that we're saying like throughout the history of the planet, we're talking millions of years, there have been big waves of temperature change but it's the speed at which that it's happening yeah and with these changes as well you're also you're also going to see different behavioral changes in different marine species so fish will start migrating to different areas of either warmer or colder waters 
Um, you'll get different algae patterns, um, which again is going to adapt mm. to the food chain. So if algal blooms are happening earlier in the year and then fish aren't able to eat as much during different times, that's going to have an impact on whether as many fish survive or they might go elsewhere to find food. And it's very easy to assume that this is just affecting things under the water, but it's not. You know, we have an abundance of seabirds out there that eat many, many fish and many are struggling. You kittiwakes and puffins and stuff that eat the sand eels. When those species start to decline as well, it's just a knock-on effect and it will go down and down and down and get worse and worse. So it's accepting that these kind of small changes like just acidification or changing the salt levels in the water um, or rising water, whilst they sound on their own extreme and you go like, oh, that's not going to happen around here. But it's this whole domino effect like i'll keep saying it is going to come back and it will start affecting different species so and it already is right so i think still people are like oh a lot of the kind of oh, the negative kind of like anti-climate stuff you hear people just going oh yeah but you said in the 80s it was about to collapse you said in the 90s yeah. it was about to collapse like oh this thing that you said is going to happen it hasn't happening it's like because you're not directly mm -hmm. feeling it but there are species have gone already extinct there are knock-on on food chains that, like, there are things now that are already impacting it, and it's because you aren't connected to puffing. Yeah, yeah. Is that you're not necessarily feeling it? It's because your life has not changed. Apart, you know, prices of things that you can buy have gone up. Cost of living's an issue, things like that. But your life has fundamentally not changed, which is why you're like, there's yeah. not a problem. Yeah. But but ask puffin, ask sand eel, and they would tell you a different story. And you also like, I think we're obsessed with the <laughs> end of the world being so sudden. And, you know, I'm not going to freak anyone out by yeah, saying yeah. that, but like we're used to being like, you know, the day after tomorrow. Oh, my God. Bam. Look, oh, it's the tidal wave suddenly. I don't know, but the fires in Greece, is anybody like there are like day after tomorrow-esque things that we're seeing? Oh, they are. They are. But I mean, like we we like we still imagine it globally. Do you know what I mean? We, we expect yeah. it like, oh, my God, every country's on fire. But, but we can distance yeah. ourselves from that because we're like, well, it's on the news. Mm. So it's over there. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, it's not, I'm not being interviewed not on always. the news. So, and because this is yeah. slowly like, you know, last year we had that huge drought in the UK or certainly south of um, the UK. But this year it's been very wet. So now that's going to switch people off again and go, well, there's no problem. That was just a hot year. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh no. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, not that I want it to be. How, oh, what, like how many people and how many scientists are going to have to tell stories <laughs> of this stuff before it's, it's yeah. bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is bizarre. Yes. Yeah. Um, so back onto the ocean. Um, it's no surprise that with these three main things that can be changed by just an average increase across the world of temperature by... 1.5 or 2 degrees, really, even though that's some threshold of acceptance among species, you're going to see huge changes. You're going to see wildlife moving around. You're going to see ecosystems start to shut down. You're going to start losing animals, um, like we said about the corals. And you were going to get more extreme weather patterns as warmer water might not be going to different places, like the Gulf Stream in the UK. And the increased water means more evaporated and then more storms up in our atmosphere as well. So all these kind of things, it's I don't know, it's just in my head, it just works. I feel like I'm explaining how to eat an egg. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm explaining such basic stuff, but it's, you know, it's atmospheric changes based from, yeah, it's just it's just a bit crappy for everything in. So, but, so tell Go me on. this though, Ryan, why does it matter that wildlife is dying as a result of this then? If humans are still able to survive? <laughs> well, it, well, it matters for a few, a few reasons. So one, if we're having 
like I said, if you take it back to like a coral reef, like a coral reef around a low-lying land, you know, that impact, that climate change on that coral reef dying off, you know, doesn't sound severe. But then when you start to think about the damage that that could do if there are storms onto that island and you're thinking about waves now crashing into the land and really not being broken up before they hit. So for that community on that land, that's a big deal. But then also if you bring it closer to home, you know, a lot of our corals are a bit deeper, so they're not given that protection. If we're having ecosystems break down around us and we're still reliant on any way, and I don't really like to like favour industrialization of fishing, but like, you know, any small fishing vessels, if we're starting to have fish move away to different waters where there's more food or, you know, just, or just die off, then, you know, for us, empty oceans are not a good thing. <laughs> They're not a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether you like the wildlife or not, empty oceans are not a good or healthy thing. So, it, you know, it can't work if every cog is not there spinning. What, what, what do you want to share before we bring in our guests? Just really generally on the point, like ecosystems collapse um, does mean that most of the things that we eat, buy, sell, make come from Earth's resources. And when ecosystems collapse, they are affected. Like, it's really interesting how it's seen as a marginal issue in relation to climate change, but it obviously it's absolutely equal, if not more important. And we should be looking at them through that same lens. But also just like a really clear, tangible link. Like, we could use carbon capture type things to start capturing carbon or reduce carbon emissions but I guess it's just this kind of like nature-based solutions to the climate. So like everyone's just like, hey, we should just plant trees. Um, and there's a famous example in 2020 in the Lake District where DEFRA gave the green light to plant a load of trees um, in part of the government's tree planting scheme, which is like this desperation to respond to the climate response. But what they then did was they, they gave the green light to plant these trees on an area of peat bog, which is capturing and holding so many more tons of carbon in the peat, um, but also just continues to capture peat. Um, when you plant trees, it dries out and that carbon then escapes. So you're losing all of that biodiversity, which is one of the world's rarest habitats. I guess you can almost solve the climate crisis without looking at biodiversity sometimes. Then you just get biodiversity to collapse, which means that ultimately we're f anyway. And so it's just kind of trying to link those two. And, and you know, there are examples, you know, where it's funny where the two meet and how biodiversity, rich biodiversity is often the solution. So for example, we, we drain and overgraze much of our uplands in the UK, making them incredibly tinder dry habitats. So when you do get in prolonged hot periods of time, there is a really big risk of wildfires in the uplands. Mm. If uplands were biodiversity rich and restored, they would be bog, wetty habitats. You try and set fire to that and you wouldn't be able to. So there's this really interesting thing of like our, our resilience to climate change is a lot better when we, I was going to say better when we're wetter. <laughs> but but um, so having biodiversity. Isn't everything? It's a completely different thing. That's um, for, for subscribers only. Um, when we, it's not a thing. When we... <laughs> have biodiversity rich areas it acts as this really good buffer exactly like you were saying with the mangroves if we allowed the mangrove forests to stay actually there is our tolerance level to deal with increasing sea rises and sea surges means that they are like a sponge so they take the shock wave of of climate change and climate issues they they capture that shock for a long period of time similarly in our uplands if we didn't destroy the biodiversity we could take the heat shock because they would be wetter and in the same way as when we get increased wet weather they also take the wet shock so it rains you know huge amounts of rain on the uplands 
at the moment, because they're dry and barren and they've, the trees have been removed, water just runs off like going over a pane of glass straight into the towns and villages below. If you had lots of wet upland, like a big wet sponge on the top with trees all around it, that water's going to take a really long time to trickle from the top all the way to the bottom. And it allows the river breathing space to take and hold that water and move it away rather than these flash flood events. And so there's a really important and interesting link between actually climate change is bad. Obviously, we were talking about it in terms of increasing sea temperatures is happening and it's already having an effect. But um, having species rich areas and natural habitats does act as a little bit of a buffer and so there's a really important link there between why biodiversity and understanding biodiversity and ecosystems allows us to be that little bit more resilient for a little bit longer which is an inevitable increase in global temperature that is happening now that we can't really turn back the time but we are where we are yeah absolutely and i think that kind of you've helped me make that more clear actually based on when you ask that question about you know how does these changes in the ocean actually affect us and i guess how my heart sees all this stuff is is less in segments like that because as a species we have to accept there is you know anyone listening or anyone out there you have to accept that you are part of nature you use stuff that has come from nature whether that be food anything heat water everything it has come from nature so to accept any form on any level of ecosystem collapse is accepting your own fate of going basically you're basically giving up going i don't care if my own species goes which i think is a very depressing way to live your life and so if we say oh all the minky whales are gone doesn't sound like it's going to affect you but it's bigger than that right it means something more it's it's, as incredibly upsetting as that is and should be to anyone really it means something more it means the beginning of an ecosystem collapse especially when we've got these these more indirect changes happening around us as well so i think that's kind of why these things should matter. I'm going to bring in some voices. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so I spoke to someone called Sarah Watts, who I've been been wanting to talk to for a while. Hello, my name is Sarah Watts, and I'm an ecologist and plant scientist working in the Scottish Highlands. She focuses on mountain plants, and over the last 10 years has studied the population trends of some Arctic alpine species. I'm currently doing a PhD project at the University of Stirling on mountain woodland restoration. So that's all about how we can enable trees and shrubs to flourish in our uplands once again and reverse long-term habitat loss for the benefit of people and wildlife. My research is actually part-time and for the rest of my time I'm actively working on implementing conservation management and nature recovery of a whole host of environments from woodlands to grasslands to peatlands from lochs and streams to mountain summits. And with the ambition to combat biodiversity loss and fight climate change. So really putting into practice what I'm learning through my research on mountain plants. Sarah explained that plant species are moving to higher latitudes and altitudes in response to climate change. The Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland has actually just published a major study called the Plant Atlas 2020, recording the distribution of vascular plants across the whole country since the 1950s. And in terms of climate change, it is rather mixed fortunes. So Britain sits at the northern edge of the European range for some species, which are expanding their distribution from southern England and moving further north, even into Scotland. 
And another change that we're seeing in recent years is that plants are tending to flower earlier in the year than previously, which could be having knock-on effects for the pollinators and other animals which rely on precise timing of the production of nectar, fruits and seeds. But it's really important to point out that Britain also sits at the very southern edge of the European distribution of some Arctic alpine plants, including the mountain species I've been studying. Arctic alpine species usually grow in cold conditions and they have been declining severely in recent years in the Scottish Highlands. In fact, our research shows that their numbers are plummeting most rapidly at their lowest altitude locations. So their distribution for these species, or the range where they occur, is contracting uphill. Mountain areas are actually warming at twice the global average, but it's not just warmer air temperatures that mountain plants have to contend with. We're also seeing changes in rainfall patterns and a reduction in the cover of late-lying snow in the Scottish Highlands. Interestingly, Sarah said that warmer temperatures and earlier snow melts each year meant plants that previously restricted to lower altitudes are colonising higher up the hill, meaning taller and more vigorous plants such as grasses are crowding out much of the small Arctic alpines that usually grow in the higher up habitats. And as well as negatively impacting flowering mountain plants, these changes are also causing the decline of mosses and liverworts, which are specially adapted to snowbed habitats. And this is a process called biotic homogenization, which means that vegetation across our mountains is becoming more similar over time as specialist rare plants are replaced by common generalists. And the biodiversity impacts are particularly acute in the Scottish Highlands, because our mountains are isolated from the rest of Europe and other areas of similar climates, leaving our threatened Arctic alpines nowhere to relocate to. There are implications for wider biodiversity. Some threatened mountain plants are actually considered ecosystem engineers because they are often the first to colonise bare ground in the harsh mountain environment. And once there, these plants help to create soil and their tightly packed leaves retain heat and moisture. These processes then create a habitat that's more suitable for less stress-tolerant plant species to grow in and for small insects to make their home in. Plants are absolutely vital because they form the fundamental building blocks for habitats and food webs on which other wildlife depends. This is why I'm absolutely obsessed with plants. They are just so important. But as our mountain plants decline, the dynamics of the ecosystems they support will be put out of balance. If we lose the plants, we lose the mountain animals, the invertebrates, birds and mammals, which rely on them for shelter and food. Lastly, I asked Sarah about some specific plant examples from her work and experience in the UK that could help draw a picture of the severity of some of these situations. So I worked on a study with the National Trust for Scotland, which monitored rare plants on the Ben Laws mountain range in the Scottish Highlands for over 40 years. Some of these mountain plant species are found nowhere else in Britain. And we found that three Arctic alpine plants in particular, snow pearlwort, drooping saxifrage, and mountain sandwort, are in severe decline and withdrawing their distribution uphill and becoming extinct at their lowest altitude locations too. 
So they're effectively facing mountaintop extinction because there's no higher ground left for them in Britain to retreat to as temperatures continue to rise. The British population of Snow Powell has declined by 66% since the mid-1990s. The lowest altitude that it is now found at in Britain is 915 metres above sea level. That's really high. There's not much ground left to go to. And so our data has directly led to the conservation threat status of Snow Powell in Britain being moved from vulnerable to endangered. It's the first vascular plant to experience this status change specifically due to the threat of climate change. And our results mirror what's been found by the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland in the Plant Atlas 2020. Many mountain plant species are showing negative trends and declines across the whole country. Species such as alpine lady fern, alpine forget-me-not, alpine pearlwort, alpine speedwell, basically lots of plants with the word alpine in their name. So we've got a really powerful story here, population monitoring at the scale of the individual plant, like we did at Ben Laws, also aligns with broad trends on the national scale, indicating serious threats to our mountain biodiversity. I also wanted, so we've gone from plants in the UK and I thought, Let's talk to someone else about the other end of the spectrum, something bigger, something huge that could be affected by this. So I spoke with Dr. Vicky Bolt, who is a researcher at the University of Reading. Hello, my name is Dr. Vicky Bolt. I currently work in the Department for Meteorology, where I study the potential of weather forecasts to improve climate adaptation and resilience in a range of decision-making contexts, including in agriculture and humanitarian disaster relief. However, my background is in ecology and conservation, and during my PhD, I studied the effects of changing food availability on African elephant population dynamics. So I wanted to know what kind of changes, maybe in population or behaviour, for example, we are seeing in the African elephant due to the climate crisis. As we're all well aware, climate change will increase global average temperatures and alter weather patterns, including the timing, distribution and amount of rainfall. Now, elephants are fairly well adapted to high temperatures, both morphologically, so they have large ears and wrinkly skin, which can help them to dissipate heat, but also behaviourally. So lots of research has shown that elephants will time their activities to coincide with daily changes in temperature. For example, resting more during the heat of the day or undertaking large movements at night when temperatures are much lower. Vicky continued to say that rainfall could be much more of a problem for elephants. Across much of Africa, rainfall is limited to very distinct wet seasons. Outside of these times of year, rainfall and vegetation, or in other words, food, declines. Now, Elephants are again used to these fluctuations in food availability, but climate change is expected to cause changes to wet seasons. So wet seasons might start later and last for a short period of time, or um, we might also see that rainy seasons fail more frequently. My own research has shown that severe depletion of food available to elephants during drought can cause dramatic decreases in elephant survival and population size. So it's really changes in rainfall and the resulting impact on food available to elephants that are the major concerns associated with climate change. Now, bearing in mind that Vicky here has pointed out that essentially food and water availability is one of the key issues from the climate crisis, 
there's no surprise what could happen next. Conflicts. I was keen to ask Vicky about the impacts on elephants and the communities that live around them. Across much of East and Southern Africa, elephants share landscapes with people and their livestock. During drought, it's not only elephants that struggle to find food, but people and their livestock too. Moreover, changes in rainfall patterns also make it more difficult for farmers to grow crops, increasing food insecurity amongst the local community. This means that during drought, elephants, people and their livestock are all drawn to the last few remaining patches of food and water. And competition can be fierce, especially when all parties are hungry, and that can lead to conflict. That conflict might mean farmers try and scare elephants away to keep those food and water resources for themselves. And in return, elephants may threaten, injure, or even kill livestock and people during these interactions. Additionally, elephants may wander into villages in search of food and water tanks, which can cause damage to property and potentially even threaten people's lives again. Retaliation against elephants in such circumstances can see elephants injured or killed. So it's a pretty terrible situation for all involved. On this point of conflicts, I've seen people online before blame human population growth for this. But other than that being incredibly unfair, and that as we are discussing the role of the climate crisis here, I wanted to ask Vicky how much the climate crisis plays a part in these conflicts over population. Though growth in human and elephant populations play a role in conflict, it's really the increasing overlap in resources required by both people and elephants that's driving human-elephant conflict. So as human and elephant populations grow, both populations require increasing space to find or to generate sufficient resources. On the one hand, this means that human settlements and farmland is expanding into once natural habitats and cutting across age-old elephant migration routes. On the other hand, it means elephant populations are travelling further afield in search of sufficient resources, sometimes through human habitation and cross-country borders. Now, the climate crisis is only going to exasperate this challenge. As rainfall becomes less predictable and the availability of food for elephants and for livestock changes, we're likely to see an acceleration in farmland expansion and the movement of elephants and livestock into previously uncharted territories. My research now is looking at whether we can use weather forecasts to anticipate periods of drought, which may lead to an increase in conflict. Using weather forecasts as early warning systems can provide a window of opportunity in which anticipatory actions can improve preparedness for changes in food availability, elephant movements, and in turn, human-elephant conflict. So, for example, the idea being if communities are more prepared, the hope is that human-elephant conflict can be minimised. This might mean, in anticipation of a drought, communities are reminded of safe ways to manage elephant incursions into farmland or villages. It could mean wildlife management organisations pre-position their ranges in strategic locations to prevent elephants moving into human habitation, or perhaps even providing food and water to both elephants and to livestock to reduce competition. Whatever actions are taken though, I believe making better use of weather forecasts could be a key way to reduce the impact of the climate crisis on elephants and the communities that they share landscapes with. A huge thanks to Vicky as well as Sarah again um, for your input there and I think you know, we've done an episode on human wildlife conflicts before, and I think a lot of the time we spoke about people just living around these animals, but we 
forget that the climate crisis is pushing these environments and these conflicts closer and closer together um, over a lack of resources. And it goes back to Nadia's question of, so why does the breakdown of the ocean really matter to us? Because it's going to push for competitive resources um, and it's just going to make life a bit more shit for everyone, <laughs> to put it into layman's terms. Yes, absolutely. And it reminds me of the polar bears. So polar bears mm. um, are increasingly they're like a poster child really for climate change in so many ways they increasingly cannot access ice so they can't fish so they're going and being pushed into human areas and there are bare human conflict there like it's on so many levels yeah like, yeah you know climate change is affecting crops we can't feed ourselves climate change is affecting you know biological ecological breakdown which is the food that we need to survive and and the richness and the complex of biodiversity that means it is that kind of sponge i think it's like the and um, if we view it as like a a shock absorber, like, mm. you know, it's just like a big, massive jungle with rich biodiversity will be a great shock absorber to like something hitting the side of it. But if you've just got a field of grass and that thing hits the side of it, just imagine the weakness of, of I'd say yeah, yeah. probably a bad analogy, but just like, you know, I guess diversity is powerful in, in the the breadth of the voices and the ways of living and being um, mm. and the resilience, but it just, you know, human wildlife conflict, you know, the fact that losing these credible species from the world on like a really airy fairy cosmic level to grow up and be told stories about there were once these creatures called elephants, it makes the world a little bit less magical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's amazing to, I, I think, after talking with Vicky and hearing the work that she's doing to actually to kind of predict that he's new almost unpredictable at times weather patterns <laughs> um to be able to help you know put in measurements to mitigate these things that are happening is is incredible work to know that people are out there doing that um and really it's <laughs> forcing people into areas of work they probably not want to be doing <laughs> you know there's there's different ways that you want to work with wildlife right other than finding ways to people to not be killed by it or have to kill it just just to survive thank you for that really interesting never never even considered that with elephants uh, absolutely. You know, someone said to me answer the question how are elephants impacted by climate change like i just don't think i would have gone no. gone there because <laughs> no. we're also used to seeing them in dry environments right so we're like well they'll be fine but you know we you know after even my short trip to southern africa you start to see these you know when people are showing you pictures of years ago you're like oh god no it's changed it has changed a lot so it's um you know things are going to Things have to adapt, and they are doing that and causing those conflicts, um, even between people and people as well. So let's kind of recap this podcast. Obviously, we've dived into it as best we can, but there are so many examples around this planet where climate change is having an impact on ecosystems and therefore our biodiversity, and that knock-on effect can lead on to us, whether it be knocking on to an effect of our food systems, our, our safe environments to live in or conflicts with species as they move and compete over resources as well. Um, this is, I wouldn't even say it's at a tipping point now, it's happening like Nadia said as we're seeing across Europe and many other parts of the world. But I guess Europe's very close to home. <laughs> so using that as an Used example. Used to be closer. Used to be closer, thanks. Um, <laughs> um, so we're seeing it now. It's not at a tipping point, but these things also will get worse as well if action is not taken to actually address the problems at hand. So we are sorry if this was a depressing episode. We didn't mean it to be. We just kind of want to 
We wanted an episode to show you that these two things, biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis, are massively interlinked and as important as each other. And we, you know, we can't save one without the other, and we shouldn't anyway. And and also and 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 remembering that biodiversity based solutions are the kind of things that we should be looking at and to kind of be critical when solutions don't involve repairing biodiversity. Remembering the fact that biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity around the globe in terms of like plants, animals and stuff, is the thing that fueled the industries that put the carbon in the atmosphere in the first place, right? And so like um, the reason why we've kind of got the wealth and the dominance to extract so much to put carbon in the atmosphere, wildlife had to die to get there to do that. So the, the link is just like deep and deep and deep and, yeah. and and yeah, important. We're trying to run a business based on going into our overdraft and it can't work like that. You need to put money back in. Basically. Is that you asking listeners to give us some money? So if you can give us some <laughs> Actually, it wasn't. I thought that was a good analogy, and you've ripped that under my feet. No, it was a really good analogy. I find well, it sounds I patronizing now. What? It sounds patronizing now. It sounds Sorry. like I asked for it. Try another one. Try come up with an analogy on the spot. It's it's like it's like trying to drive your car on empty. That's it. Why are you driving a car? It's climate crisis. And wait, stop it. Stop driving your car. Right, doesn't have a car. I don't have a car. I don't have a license. Thank you. I find that really interesting. I feel like we could have done a podcast on like every single, oh, I don't know, we could have done it on imagine. the elephants alone or the tigers alone or whatever. Yeah, there's, there's so much in that. And I think our main point, like I said, was to discuss and kind of dive into how these things are affecting each other and how when they're both showing their signs, it's going to affect us as well. We're very much part of this. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We're going to do a like a more comedy episode. I think we'll do a Nature Room 101 next, shall we? Yeah, let's do some, let's get some we guests do on and we'll do ones? We can do a drunk one. What are we going to ask people to put in Room 101 next time? We would like to know which marine species would you chuck into Nature Room 101? Oh, my God. After this podcast? Okay. I know. I know. I know. Given, given that the oceans are really important and we're worried about them, but what can just get in the bin which, before which it gets one too... Can... Before the sea levels get too rise? We're at the point rising. where we're going to have to chuck one away. There's not enough resources. We need to chuck one. Who is the sacrificial swimmer? Sacrificial swimmer. Which one are you getting rid of? Which marine species? Let us know. For nature and 101. I mean, we've already done a room 101 once with ocean sunfish. So you can't bring up ocean sunfish, which I'm fairly sure are in there already. Or squid or who, clownfish. Yeah. Okay, okay. So who do you want to join ocean sunfish in room 101? Because they're a bit lonely down there. <laughs> they were lonely when they weren't in room 101. Because <laughs> everything else was like, I'm not being friends with you. We're friends with that. Look at it. I would really hate to think that inside room 101 there was like hierarchy and bullying. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to visit. What Headlock, if they do water, no friends. <laughs> everything in God, what if everything in room 101 had a nibble of, of hemlock water dropwort? Oh God. Well it's all dead. It's a, it's a dark place, is that nature room 101? Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. We'll talk to you again in a month. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. You can find us on social media at Into the Wild Pod for Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com. <laughs>